0: I think it's fair to say, Lord, that we're, um, with each year that goes by, we become increasingly aware of how quickly time does go by. And here we are in a new year, and it's always a healthy exercise to look back over the previous year. It's healthy to think back to where we were 12 months ago. Some of uh, us were in a different city. Some of us were in a different job. Some of us were uh, in a different state emotionally. Always good to look back. Now, 12 months ago, we didn't have a clue what was ahead of us. Now we can look back over uh, over that trail, and we can see it all. And now we're at the same place as we look ahead. But we thank you, Lord, that as uncertain as things are to us, and, and, and quite frankly, there are guys here who a year ago, 12 months ago, they were doing pretty well, and they're not doing real well right now. So we pray for ourselves, for what we're facing And the prayer that we would pray is that, for each of us, is that you would increase our faith. Uh, I, I think of that passage in Matthew where you said over and over and over again, you said, do not worry. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Your Father knows that you need these things. And you were speaking, Lord, of our material needs, food and clothing and shelter, and you said that uh, each day has enough trouble of its own. We are to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, you know exactly what we need, uh, but we also have needs that are emotional. We have needs that pertain to our families and needs that pertain to our, uh, our fears and our concerns in in every area of life. So, once again, we would make that prayer, Lord, increase our faith. And one of the ways that our faith is increased is by looking backwards. We look back over the last 12 months. You sustained us. You got us through some things we weren't quite sure we'd get through. Or we look back over the last five years. Uh, We look back over the last 10 years. We've got a couple of guys in here that were told they'd be dead 10 years ago, and they're not. So it's so easy, Lord, to look. It is so easy to look at what is around us, to look at the criticism, to look at the the frustration, to look at the uncertainty. To ask the question, why? It's so easy to look at these different factors, but the fact of the matter is, if we will look to you, our faith will be increased, because of who you are, because of your greatness, because you have brought us through, you've been faithful all these years, why would you stop being faithful now? Well, you won't, and we know that. So, for the guys who need courage, give them a dose of courage. For the guys who need hope tonight, give them a quart of hope. For, for the guys that uh, need patience because they're having to wait, give them the grace to wait. What we all have in common is that we need you. We need you for every step, every step every decision, before we write an email, we need you. We acknowledge that tonight. Teach us, we pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. This past fall, we did a study of events. Now, if you weren't with us, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe you you were with us, and it still doesn't make sense. We talked about the events of life, uh, the events of life that, uh, that surprise us and shock us and stun us, and the point we were making is that these events of our lives uh, that come into our lives many times stun us, but they never stun God, they never shock God, because God is in control of all things, all things, every event, good, bad, uh, he uses those things in our lives to make us better men. story is told of a uh, high school assembly. You remember those days going to the high school assemblies. This was a unique high school assembly because uh, they had three speakers. They had three recruiters, one from the Army, one from the Navy, one from the Marines. And the principal told each of the recruiters that they had 15 minutes, and they had a very tight timeline. And he would appreciate it if they would honor the 15 minutes that he was giving to each of them. So they get up in front of the assembly, and it's just the high school guys. And the Army guy goes first, and he talks for 30 minutes. And the other two recruiters are sitting there, just steam coming out of their ears. But he was so excited about the Army, and he's giving his pitch, and he got pretty enthusiastic, didn't look at the time, he goes 30 minutes. Well, then the Navy guy gets up, and he's got to make up lost ground, so he goes 13 minutes. So finally, the Marine guy gets up, and can look at the clock. He's got two minutes left, and he walks up to the podium, and he does something kind of strange. For the first 60 seconds, he just stands at the podium, and he just looks. He just looks. He's looking them over. He doesn't say a word for 30 seconds, 45. 50. He's losing his time. At the end of 60 seconds, he finally says, there may be three of you. <laughs> that could cut it as Marines. (laughs) In the cafeteria at lunch hour, we got three tables. I wanna see you three guys at my table. (laughs) And then he sat down. (laughs) He walked into the cafeteria, he couldn't even get to his table. They were 10, 15, 20 deep. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? That kind of makes sense that he would say that, wouldn't he? Because the Marines are known. The Marines are looking for just a few. They're just looking for a few men. Well, actually, they're not looking for a few men. They're looking for a few good men. Because you see, you can do a lot with just a few good men. Now, when we say they're looking for good men, what do we mean by that? Well, what what comes across is that the Marines, you know, it's a a higher calling. Not everybody can cut it. We're looking for some good men. We're looking for some men with character. Character. I got to tell you, I'm a little confused by this whole bowl situation in college football. Uh, it used to be real simple when I was a kid. You'd get up New Year's Day. I, I grew up in California. So the in California, 9 o'clock, the cotton bowl was on when I was a kid. And then shortly thereafter that, they get the sugar bowl going. And then the rose bowl would come on around 2 o'clock. Orange bowl would come on in the evening. I mean, your whole day, it was great because your whole day was pretty much planned. And now it's all screwed up. Have you noticed? Have you noticed that? I mean, I I, I just couldn't keep up with what. I think the Sugar Bowl is next Friday. <laughs> and the Orange Bowl is. You know, I mean, they they have screwed this thing up. Now I lost my point because I. What's well, it's embarrassing. I was hoping to start strong this semester. And character. character. Oh, oh, okay, character. Well, I'm watching, I think, it was the, I think it was the Orange Bowl, whatever night that was on. And it's the Southeastern Conference. And they had, I don't know if you saw this, but they had a couple of little 60-second vignettes, and they called them like uh, chapters on character. Well, the first one, it, it, you know, he had a little nice thing, Southeastern Conference uh, chapters on character, stories of character. And then who comes on the screen but Bill Clinton? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, what? And then he told the story of, <clears throat> as I recall, I think the first black player at the University of Florida or something. And it was, a, it was a pretty moving story. And obviously this gentleman had a lot of character. But I thought, there's a little disconnect there. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and if you're thinking that's a political thing, it, it really isn't, because even if even those that are supportive would have to agree, there's some big character issues. Isn't that interesting? Character, character is everything. We are uh, going to commence a study tonight on a small, obscure book. In the New Testament, it doesn't get a lot of attention. But I think it's a great book. It's the book of Titus. And the book of Titus, I think, is simply that God is looking for a few good men. Not a lot of men. just needs a few good men. And see, when God talks about good men, what God's talking about is, he's talking about character. Character's Everything. Uh, if you have your Bible, why don't you start turning to Titus? It's small. It's obscure. Sometimes it takes several minutes to find it. It's probably the hardest thing in the Christian life, don't you think? It's finding all these books in the Bible and getting them in the right order. But if you can find Timothy, go to your right. If you're in Revelation, I'd go to your left. If you're in Genesis, I'd go right. And, and you'll get there. How many of you guys got a little GPS thing for Christmas? Anybody get one? I got one for my daughter. Those things are unreal. They're just incredible. Someone needs to do a GPS for new Christians when they get a Bible. it just take you right to the spot. Uh, Titus is, uh, I think, is a great little book. It, um, it, it, it is a book that is set in crisis. And... Um, Paul, Paul is writing as he wrote to Timothy, now he's writing to Titus. And you know Paul's modus operandi, he would go in on his journeys and he would start a church and then he would leave and probably had to leave quicker than he normally would have. We, we don't have a lot of background on this particular book. We've we got to do a little bit of educational guessing because it's not mentioned in his missionary journeys, but we know that he was in this area called Crete. If you look at Titus 1, verse 5, he says, for this reason I left you in Crete. He's speaking to Titus. Now, he's got a job for Titus to do. He says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. Uh, And we'll get into this over the next few weeks, but just to give you a flavor, they got some issues They need to get this church set up. They need to get it lined out. They need to get some leaders. He needs a few good men to lead this church and to stabilize this church so that this church can be what God wants it to be. And the reason that's so important is that it's on the island of Crete. The island of Crete... Those people did not have a great reputation. Just in the Mediterranean Sea, it's 100 miles southwest of, uh, to the south of Greece. But they had a horrible reputation. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10, we're just kind of helicoptering this thing. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, Jewish false teachers who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Notice he says they must be silenced. Well, who's going to silence them? Because these guys are coming into the church, and they're upsetting whole families. Who's going to silence them? A few good men. A few good men with character. Character. It's interesting to me how it is that God develops character in our lives. Uh, He tends to develop character through uh, affluence and health and all of our goals being achieved and accomplished. (laughs) So that we too can retire at 50 with no financial worries. Isn't it amazing how God does that so often in our lives? Isn't it amazing how he so rarely does that in our lives? And why is that? Because that doesn't produce character. And he's interested in developing character in our lives. I enjoyed the break because I was able to do a lot of good reading. And uh, I was reading The Economist magazine at Thanksgiving, and they had some recommendations on books in there. And one of them was on uh, a biography that has come out on Henry Stanley. He was the guy that uh, the great African explorer... And he's been kind of bad-mouthed over the last 40 years, but this guy wrote a new biography on him. Fascinating biography. He was the guy that went into Africa to find Livingston. And the one who said after finally finding him, because it was a real shot in the dark that he found him, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Say the old guys know that. You young guys, you don't know that. Especially if you went to public school. <laughs> See, when we were in school, us old guys, they had a course called History. And you didn't take that. You took Self-Esteem 101. That's why you're stupid when it comes to history. I just thought I'd throw that out there. No, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Stanley was the guy that went in there to find Livingston. Well, that got me going, and I thought, you know, I've never read anything on Livingston. So I started the guy that wrote the biography on... Stanley had written one on Livingston, but it was out of print, but I found another one. So I've been reading that one. Livingston was a great man. He was a great man. He, 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 the reason they, could, they couldn't find him. A New York newspaper publisher paid for Stanley to go try and find Livingston because the whole world was wondering where he was. Now, he was a great man. He had done some great work. But he financed this, and to get in to, this, to these remote areas where there were no roads and it had not been mapped, uh, this New York publisher wrote a check so that th- they had a supply line of 150 men just to get in there and try to find this guy. Uh, why, why was he out in the middle of nowhere? Well, David, David Livingston had three desires in his life. Number one, he wanted to evangelize. He wanted people who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to hear it. That's what he wanted to do. Secondly, he wanted to explore. He wanted to get in and explore Africa and find out the river system of that nation because one of the things he felt that he could do, see, his third thing was emancipation. He wanted to set the slaves free and he wanted to break the slavery system that was going on in Africa. But before he could break the slavery system, he had to figure out a way to get those people economically independent. And in order to do that, he had to figure out a way that they could navigate the rivers. And then he would, at one point, he would teach them how to grow crops. And then they wouldn't be, it's, it's, it's very intricate. But those were the three E's of his life. He wanted to evangelize, he wanted to explore, and he wanted to emancipate. So this guy just got lost. They never knew where he was. He had, he had horrible bouts of malaria. I mean, the stuff he lived through was beyond belief. Um, he was greatly respected. You know why he was so respected? Because of his character. Um, he didn't treat African blacks as inferiors. He treated them as people made in the image of God, and he loved them, and he cared for them. Now, now, how did he get to be like that? He came from a very poor home in Scotland, extremely poor. I'll read you a couple shots out of this biography. David, at the tender age of 10, was called upon to share in the financial upkeep of his home at the age of 10. This was in 18, he was born in 1813. So in 1823, he goes to work in a mill. And it's a mill that made cotton thread. In the summer and throughout the bitterly cold, dark winters, he was awakened at 5.30 in the morning by the mill bell, which hung on the outside corner of the building. He would make his way into the mill. And then he would work from 6 in the morning till 8 at night. It's a long day. Six in the morning until eight at night, he would work in tremendous heat and humidity for steamed temperatures of 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit were considered ideal for the production of thread. These little spools of thread, that's what they're making. Uh, The children, now this kid's 10 years old, they only had a half hour's halt for breakfast and an hour free for lunch. A working day of 12 and a half hours, six days a week. Uh, They called these children piercers because they would pierce together the broken strings. Piercers needed sharp eyes and the power of constant attention if they were to avoid frequent beatings. Why were they beaten? Because their adult supervisors worked on commission. And in order for them to make the profit, these kids had to be kept motivated so they would beat them from time to time. Um, They also had to be unusually agile since their work often involved climbing under the machinery or balancing over it. Piecers walked anything up to 20 miles a day in the mills, these little kids. And much of this distance was covered in crawling or stooping positions. Long hours on their feet often led to the development of bowed legs and varicose veins. Each of the adult spinners or supervisors had three piercers attending to his machine. And since he was paid in proportion to what he produced, it was in his interest to force the children on. Often towards evening, the children started to fall asleep on their feet. But a beating with a leather strap or a dousing with a bucket of water generally renewed their energies. Many of the children ended up with limbs deformed and their growth stunted. This is how David Livingston was, was reared. By the end of the working day, Most of the children were too tired to play and certainly in no frame of mind to learn. David Livingston and a handful of other children were more ambitious. They defied aching limbs and tired minds and wearily made their way to the company school to study from 8 to 10 p.m. Now think about this. A 10-year-old kid would go to work at 6 in the morning, work till 8 at night. I can remember in college... I used to put in 12, 14 hours a day doing air freight, unloading trucks. And I was shocked. But I was 20, 21, 22. I was in pretty good shape. I'm a 10-year-old kid. But from 8 to 10, he'd go to school. Oh, and then he would go home, do his homework until midnight. Interestingly enough, David Livingston, with part of his first week wages, he was 10 years old, he purchased rudiments of Latin the language he studied for many years. He wasn't taught Latin in the school. He wanted to learn that on his own. Why? Because as a little boy, he had a desire to become a doctor. To be a doctor, you had to learn Latin. His family didn't have the money. They didn't have the status. They, they had nothing. It's an amazing story how he eventually got out of that mill. It's an amazing story how he actually got into a college. It's an amazing story how he actually got into a medical school. And after all that work and after all that discipline, at the age of 27, he took off for Africa to evangelize and to explore and to emancipate people who would be slaves for the rest of his life. Why did he have such compassion on those people? Because he lived as a slave. He was being paid, but he knew what those people were going through. That's why he was so revered. He was a man of character. Not affluence, not ease, character. Yeah, Interesting thing about the Lord, we were talking about our study in the fall, that God uses events in our lives. So nothing that happens to us is a mistake, nothing that happens to us is a surprise to God. We milk that one pretty good in the fall. But you know what's interesting about character? So much of our character is determined by our response to the events that come into our lives. So much of our character is determined by our choices that we make concerning those events in our lives. Uh, had someone ask me before we got going tonight, they, they were asking me about... Uh, I said, you know, I asked you a question about God's will and about providence and, you know, is God really in control? And you at one point said God micromanages the whole world. And I said, yeah. And he said, you gave me a scripture to read and I read it. And I said, yeah. And he says, well, where does our free will come in? It's a great question. We have a will. We have choices. You have a will. I have a will. We make choices every day. Uh, You say, well, how does that work? If God has a will and God's in control of everything, why do my choices make a difference? Because the Bible says they do. I mean, the Bible teaches that you have a will and I have a will, but then it also teaches that God has a will. It does not depend on the man who runs or the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. I have a will. I can make choices. You can make choices. So I don't quite understand that. Well, join the club. And it's a big club. But the Scripture teaches it. All I know is that my choices and my decisions count. That's why the book of Proverbs is all about a father teaching a son about using wisdom and making choices in life. Because our choices count. The way we respond to the events, David Livingston did not allow that background of his to stunt his growth. He didn't allow it to hold him back. One of the things I didn't read to you is that they made fun of him because what he would do with that Latin book, he would set that Latin book up on a little table by the machine, and as he was walking back and forth, checking the cotton thread, he would just steal a quick look at a sentence, and then he would think about the sentence as he was making his rounds on the machine. And then as he would come back, he would read the Nixon's. He didn't spend his time in in self-pity. He didn't spend his time thinking about what a raw deal. He made a choice to respond as best he could. And to a great degree, that determined the kind of man that he became. So much of our character is built on the choices we make in regard to how we respond to the events that happen to us in life. There's a popular book out right now called Microtrends. Um, I haven't read it. I just read the introduction to it, and it was pretty good. I'll probably read the rest of it uh, if it's as good as the introduction. Here's what he says He says, in the early 1900s, Henry Ford created the assembly line so that mass consumerism could take place uniformly. Thousands of workers turned out one black car millions and millions of times. Remember the old thing, Henry Ford? You can get a Ford any color you want, as long as it's black. That's how they did it. So you had all these guys working, a lot of them working, to turn out Fords that were black. Okay? He says, today, few products still exist like that. One that does, ironically, is the personal computer, which has made it to every desk in every home in essentially the same form. There is some customization around the edges, but if you go to a typical comp USA to buy a computer, and I believe they just went out of business. If you go to a typical comp USA to buy a computer, you'll have fewer options than you do choosing lettuce in the supermarket. By contrast, Starbucks is governed by the idea that people make choices in their coffee, their milk, their sweetener, and that the more choices that people have, the more choices that people have, the greater satisfaction they feel. And in just those simple choices, you can see the unpredictability of the consumers. Some are avoiding caffeine, fat, or sugar. Others are happily ordering them all. Starbucks is successful because it can be all things to all people. It makes no bets on one set of choices over another. Whereas in the Ford economy, the masses were served by many people working to make one uniform product. In the Starbucks economy, the masses are served by a few people working to make thousands of customized, personalized products. And you better hope you don't get in line behind the guy. (laughs) That is real particular. I want a non fat caramel macchiata, soy, 110 degrees. That's when I kidney punch the guy. <laughs> just get out of the way, will you? It's just coffee, man. Then he goes on. He said, It's not just Starbucks. The Starbucks model seems to be winning. iPods are popular not because we can carry around music. We could do that with the Walkman in the 1980's. They are popular because they let us pick and choose our own songs. Personal technology has become personalized technology, and now we can have exactly what we want in almost every consumer area. Did you know that that's pretty much true when it comes to character? When it comes to to character, you can pick and choose the kind of character that you want to have. It's interesting to me, I I think this happens to a lot of guys who are Christians. We get frustrated because we don't see that we're growing. We get frustrated because we don't see that we're maturing fast enough. Well, some of us are still dealing with stuff that we were dealing with years ago. And, and as a result of that, I've talked with guys who become convinced they're not Christians because they don't see more growth, they don't see more development because it's such a struggle and it's such a fight. But see, the, and, and you might flip with me. You say we're in Titus. Yeah, we're in Titus, but flip over to Romans 7. Because you see, this whole, this whole process of developing character is a very interesting one. It's, it's very slow at times. It, uh, it's very frustrating at times. We think we should be much further down the trail than we are. You 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 know the struggle here that. You know the struggle that, that that Paul, went through at times. Uh, look at verse fifteen, Romans seven. This is the conflict of the two natures that are within us. Because Jesus is, Has broken the power of sin in our lives, but sin still lives within us. He says in verse 15, for what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is isn't my flesh, for the willingness present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin what you all in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me. Well, I'll talk to guys that get so frustrated and they become convinced because they're struggling so deeply, they're not even Christians. I think it's a sign you are a Christian. It's the guy who never worries about it, who's not the Christian. How come I can't be more patient? My gosh, I mean... We just came through Christmas. Did you have a good Christmas? If your in-laws were here, you probably didn't. (laughs) Now you acted like you did. I'm kind of kidding. Some of you guys don't do well with your in-laws. You were tense the day you found out they were coming. Now, others of you have great relationships with your in-laws. That's great. We had a bunch of people come to our house for Christmas. A bunch of them. And they were all related to me. And I do all right with that for a few days. And then I start to fray at the edges. So what I was praying for is that, Lord, help me here. I get up in the morning and and I go walk and I would pray, help me to be patient. And and help me... um, to watch what I say. It's tough sometimes, isn't it? It's real tough. At least I find it tough. Uh, Here's the thing about Christianity. God wants Christianity um, to be lived out in our attitudes, in our behavior, and in our character. I'm getting ahead of myself here Um, let's go back to Titus this is an interesting little book it's a short book as you can tell one of the things that's interesting about Titus is the introduction you know usually Paul uh, hey you've been at events and there's going to be a speaker and the guy gets up the MC gets up to introduce the speaker I I do a lot of speaking around the country and the guy who's going to introduce me always says what do you want me to say and I always say as little as possible because, you know, just, just get me going. He says, well, I got your bio. I said, yeah, but, you know. And some guys actually read the whole thing. <laughs> and everybody's bored to tears. That's, that's not what you want to do. And you've, you've seen situations where a guy gives a long, long, long introduction. The best introductions are short. And usually when Paul's writing an epistle, he, he, Paul doesn't mess around. He just, you know, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, Christ Jesus, grace and peace unto you, boom, here we go. That's kind of how Paul usually does it. But what's interesting in Titus is he's got a longer introduction, and it's a short book. Now, why is he doing that? Let's take a look at his intro. Uh, Paul, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's pretty normal for him. That's who he is. He's a servant of Christ. He's a slave of Christ. He's an apostle. He was hand-chosen. He was hand-called face-to-face by Christ. The great persecutor of the church became the great apostle of the church. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now watch this. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness... In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus. That... uh... That's a lot of stuff. I kind of wish he had gone with the short version. But why didn't he do the short version? Well, there's a reason for this. Uh, He's writing to Titus, and we'll talk more next week about Titus and who he was and what was going on in his life. By the way, Titus is one of the good men. And you got a messy situation that needs to be cleaned up, and so Titus... He wants him to remain, and he wants him to clean it up, and he wants him to find some good men and appoint them to become elders to help him. And then he's going to list the character qualifications that must be in the lives of those guys that Titus appoints, because the whole thing that's going to make or break them is the character of the men that are in leadership with him. And the reason that's so important is that The island of Crete had a reputation across the world of being an island full of people who were liars and deceivers and reprobates. And the Greeks actually made up a word based on the Cretans that meant to lie, they had their own word. Isn't that something? That's why it was so important, if we're going to have a church in Crete, we got to have men whose lives stand in opposition and contrast to what's going on all around them. Uh, Crete was not the Bible belt. Crete was San Francisco. You, You walk into San Francisco with a Bible, and they'll arrest you. Not yet. You're asking for it. You're looking for trouble. You have pastors in San Francisco whose homes have been firebombed for standing for the gospel. It is not a gospel-friendly environment. That's the way Crete was. In situations like that, you need a few good men with godly character. Now, this introduction, Paul is going to point out, here's the thing about character, and these men that were going to be appointed, Titus and the other guys, there were some things that Paul wanted them to know, and it's all in this introduction. I want to give you three things that Paul wanted them to know that he put in the introduction that he normally didn't put into the introduction. And I think there are three things we need to know because our culture is becoming I don't know if you've noticed this, increasingly hostile to Christianity. Did you know that there was an honor killing in Flower Mound? A Muslim father murdered his two teenage daughters because they were dating guys that weren't Muslims. Have you read about that much in the media? It was kind of stifled for several weeks. Now, what if that had been a Southern Baptist pastor? Oh, my gosh. I mean, CNN would be parked on the sucker's driveway. Why is that? Well, you know why it is. It's just the times they are changing. Isn't that improper? Actually, that's from Bob Dylan. But it's true. The times they are changing. You heard this country song? The guy uh, talks about uh, how it was when he was growing up, and he says, It wasn't just a different time, it was a different world. You think back to how you were raised and what things were like when you were growing up, it wasn't just a different time, it was a different world. It's changing so fast. This culture is becoming hostile to biblical truth and the biblical teaching. For you see, there are many ways. No, there's not. There's only one name under heaven by which men may be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. Well, you know, that's not real popular around here. No, we're we're still okay because we're in Texas. But you go to Minnesota and you teach that. You go to the Bay Area and you teach that. Three things Paul emphasizes in the introduction that he wants Titus to know, and he's going to want these men to know that Titus appoints. Number one, your faith is from your father. Where do you get that? All right, look at verse one. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now watch this. For the faith of those Chosen of God. For what these men were going to go through, these men were going to be appointed as leaders. When you are appointed to become a leader, suddenly you're in the public eye. Suddenly you're the lightning rod. Suddenly when you've got to take a stand for truth, the uh, reciprocation is going to come back on you. When you are a leader in a hostile environment, uh, you're going to experience persecution. You're going to, uh, you're going to experience scorn. You're going to experience ridicule. What these men were going to need to know, that their faith, the fact that they were Christians, was from their father. Now, 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 now sometimes, see, here's what we got to do. we got to pull back here and see what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is simply this. The fact that you're in this church, Titus, the fact that I want you to find a few good men of character to help lead this church and to settle this situation down, Uh, men whose lives are going to be in distinction of what's going on around them so they can be a light in a dark place to the truth of Christ, Um, you're going to get some heat, and things are going to get hard and things are going to get difficult. But here's what I want you to know. You're not by yourself, and there's a reason you're in the place that you're in. And there's a reason you've been through what you've been through. Uh, you're a man who has faith in Christ, and the reason you have faith is that that faith is from the Father. Notice what he says here. He says, for the faith of those chosen of God. Uh, the evangelical church is real strong. We preach the gospel, and then we say to people... Have you asked Christ to come into your life? And by an act of your will, have you asked the Lord to come into your life and to forgive you of your sins? And and that's how we come to know the Lord. But there's another aspect to that. And the fact that we even come to him, well, the scripture puts it this way. We love him because... He first loved us. Do I use my will and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life? Yes. But why did I do that? Because he loved me first. See, did I choose him? Yes. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me. But I chose you. Now, some of you guys don't like this. But it's in your Bible. You did not Choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. That's what was going on with these guys. Titus needed to know, hey, listen, you know what? You've got faith because your father gave you the faith. The reason you're in the camp is that out of his goodness and mercy, he has chosen you. And we go, wait a minute, why would he choose me? You mean he hasn't chosen everybody? No, he hasn't chosen everybody. Well, why would he choose me? And when you start to think on that, you go, why would he choose me? That's amazing. You bet it's amazing. And guys who were poetic start writing hymns like, amazing love. (laughs) How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And then someone also writes write, amazing grace. By the way, that was John Newton. Who was a captain of a slave ship. I was able to read a biography on Newton over Christmas by David Aikman, head's uh, prison fellowship in England. Phenomenal biography. He's a slave captain. And then the gospel starts breaking out on this guy. Newton was such an incredible blasphemer that other godless sailors did not want to get near him on the deck of a ship. Because his profanity and his blasphemies were, were, were so repulsive even to other pagans. He was a sexual reprobate. Uh, God broke into his life and saved him. He could not believe it. He could not believe it. And then the Lord began to change his character. Uh, he would go back out on the ships and things had to change in his life. He would go in the port and he wouldn't even get off the ship because he knew he couldn't handle walking by the brothels. So he'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and he would read a scripture. And in order to become a godly man, he didn't put this on anyone else, he put it on himself. He knew he'd be under such temptation when he was out for a year or two on a ship. He left port, he would drink water and he would eat bread, and that was it. Because he was trying to just sustain himself on the basics and not have excess in any other area of his life. You say, that's extreme. Yeah, he didn't put on anybody else. He was just trying to be, develop character. He had been such a, an extremist in every area of his life. Isn't it interesting? He wasn't trying to earn salvation. He had it. But he was trying to discipline himself for godliness. You say, he went to a real extreme. Yeah, he did because he was so extreme the other way. But he was... You know, Romans says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. He was trying to, he was trying to put down sin in his own life. He was fighting sin. I, I, I mean, some of you guys, you struggle with pornography late at night. Have you ever thought about getting rid of the computer in your house? I mean, has it ever crossed your mind? Have you ever thought about taking extreme action? I couldn't do that. No, you could do it. It'd be inconvenient, but you could do it. If you hate it enough, you'll do what needs to be done. Oh, by the way, interestingly enough, so for years he struggled, and then God began to break through in his life and began to change his character. He ultimately became a pastor. In a little church, not a big church, a little church, was a wealthy family, their nephew came and stayed with him for several years. A uh, young boy from another wealthy family his name was William Wilberforce. He was 10 years old. John Newton was his pastor. This ex-slaver was teaching, and this 10-year-old boy sitting over here, who would be the young man who would grow up in parliament, who would end slavery in the British Empire. Is that not amazing? how God works? Uh, At times, John Newton would be so beside himself because of a sin, he would have horrible nightmares. See, he just needed to know that the fact that he was in the family was because of the faith that was given to him by his father. Here's the second thing that's in the introduction. Your knowledge should make you live like your father. Let me say that again. Your knowledge should make you live like your father. The very next phrase, he says, for the faith of those chosen of God, now watch this, and the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance to godliness, or which is according to godliness. This, this can get, you've got you to get this. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and, now watch this, the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. In other words, it's just not knowledge to be able to win a trivial pursuit game. You know how many kings there were in Judah and Israel. It's just not knowledge that you know stuff about the Bible. It's knowledge that is according to godliness. And what is godliness? It's becoming more like God in your behavior. Turn over to 1 Peter 1. Go to the right. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 15. Uh, Let's start with 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Think about John Newton. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We don't talk a lot about holiness anymore. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What's holiness? It's moral purity. It's it's the life of Christ coming out in our lives. I was also reading over the break this book I read before by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. You know, in John 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. There are two things in the Christian life, guys. When we come to Christ and our sins are forgiven, Jesus forgives our sin, past, present, and future. That's called justification. But you'll also see in the scripture the term sanctify. If you grew up in church, you know these terms. At Maybe you don't know what they mean, but you've heard them. Uh, Justification and sanctification. Justification is the legal act where you are forgiven the penalty of your sin because of the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, You're adopted into the family of God. Uh, Sanctification is the setting apart of your life in holiness unto him. Uh, Sanctification means you're different. Uh, Chuck's been doing this series in Romans, and he's been in Romans 14 about liberty, and a lot of us grew up in real legalistic homes. In legalistic churches. I mean, I grew up in a church, and we couldn't go to movies. We couldn't dance. We Basically, you couldn't have fun. I mean, it was right. I think it was in the church charter. No fun. (laughs) I remember the first time I walked into a movie. Chuck told a story about his friend who went into the movie. I went to a movie. I was 15 years old. You know what movie I walked into? With fear and trembling before Almighty God was Cinderella. I mean I mean I, I, I'm not kidding you, it was a cathartic experience for me because I'd been taught you don 't watch movies like growing up, we didn't watch movies. Now we watch Turner Classic movies and I watch all the movies I couldn't watch because I don't want to watch the trash that's out there now. Uh, listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He says, true holiness does not consist merely of believing and feeling, but of doing and bearing and a practical exhibition of active and passive grace. Our tongues, our tempers, our natural passions and inclinations, our conduct as parents and children, masters and servants, husbands and wives, rulers and subjects, our dress, our employment of time, our behavior and business, our demeanor and sickness and health, in riches and in poverty, All all of these are matters which are fully treated by the inspired writers of Scripture. They are not content with a general statement of what we should believe and feel, but how we are to have the roots of holiness planted in our hearts. They dig down lower. They go into particulars. They specify minutely what a holy man ought to do and be in his own family and by his own fireside if he abides in Christ. So we'd say today they dig deeper and tell you what kind of man you ought to be as you sit looking at your plasma TV. It's to come out in my life. So notice if you would. No, notice the All the way through Titus, he's got, he's got a, um, an emphasis on godly character. Godly, I want you to get this. Godly character comes out in good deeds. Okay? W- watch this. You notice the term godliness there in verse 1? All right, look at verse 16. He's talking about the Cretans and the false teachers. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They say they know him, but by their deeds you can tell they don't know him. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Say, wait a minute, we're not saved by good deeds. No, we're not. He's not saying we're saved by good deeds. He's saying after we're saved, the change of heart that comes into my life by the Spirit of God ought to come out in good deeds. Notice uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, In 13, he says, he speaks of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Jesus died for us. We can't pay for our sin. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. But once Christ comes into our lives, we want our character to come out in good deeds. To make me a better man, a better husband, better father, better businessman. Note uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Let it come out of your life. Look at 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds. He's making it clear again. It's not good works that saves us. But at once he has saved us, the good deeds are going to come out. Look at um, 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Look at 3.14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds. This is why God works on our character. He wants it to come out in our behavior, in our attitudes. So what does that mean? It means I shouldn't live one way at church and live a different way at home. That's the quickest way way in the world to turn kids off to Christ. Here's number three. Number three, your future is secure in the promise of your father. Now, why do they need to know that? Because once again, they're in a very hostile situation to Christianity. Uh, You know, I'm meeting more and more guys that are being denied job promotions because they're Christians. I'm meeting more and more guys who are being laid off given other reasons, but they're being laid off because they're Christians. The third point is your future is secure in the promise of your father. Going back to Titus, note what he says. I want you to note verse 2, and I'll pick it up from 1 just to get the flow. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now watch this. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation or the preaching with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now there's a lot of stuff in there. But what he's saying is, God made promises in his word that give us a hope of eternal life that at a certain time was completely revealed, and I am proclaiming this. I'm breaking out this manifest, and I'm telling you the gospel. Here's what I want you to see here. You see that in verse 2? In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie. Here's something that's amazing to me. It it, It doesn't say God who doesn't lie. It says God who cannot lie. Not that he doesn't, he can't. We have a God that can't lie. He just can't do it. So what does that mean? If he can't lie because of his nature, because of his holiness, if he can't lie and he makes a promise, guess what? The promise is going to come true. So there when the heat comes and I get worried and I get anxious and what's going to happen to me, I've got a father who's in control of everything and he has promised to take care of me. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I live off the promise because he can't lie. Therefore, I have a hope of eternal life. If you're an old guy, you know about Fanny Crosby. If you're a young guy, you don't have a clue. Who would name a little girl Fanny? Her name was Frances. Back in the day, that was a popular name. Uh Fanny Crosby has written more hymns. If you're an old guy and you grew up in church, you can remember turning those hymnals. About every other hymn was written by Fanny Crosby. Interesting lady. She wrote over 9,000 hymns. Blind from the time she was six weeks old. Not born blind. But when she was born, the family doctor was away. She developed a problem with her eyes. There was another man visiting the town who claimed to be a doctor and was selling medicine, one of those medicine guys. They called him. He came over, put a mustard poultice on her eyes and blinded her for the rest of her life. She wrote 9,000 hymns. She would write three to five hymns a week. In fact, a lot of the hymns she wrote, she wrote under pseudonyms so that her name would not be everywhere in the hymnal. On one occasion, a pastor said to her, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Fanny Crosby responded at once, as she had heard such comments before, Pastor, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one request, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of the Savior. That's a remarkable perspective. To her, it was a blessing to have been born. blind, To go blind at six weeks. First face she'll ever see will be that of Jesus. How in the world can she have that perspective? Because she believed in a Bible that was written by a God who cannot lie. And as a result, she has the hope of eternal life. Hey, guys, I'm done. But let me say this to you. We're going to do this study. We're going to do this study on a few good men, how God's going to develop character in our lives. And if you think this is just about character, you're wrong. It's about character in the midst of somebody turning up the heat. Because we're living in difficult times, We're living in anti-Christian times, and if we're going to be the men that God desires for us to be, we're going to have to be rooted and grounded in the truth of the Scripture and the truth of who He is, so that we will not fear, and that we will believe that He will bless our lives as He has promised to do. That's why we're going after Titus. And we've got more than a few good men in here to study together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the power of these words. We are so grateful for who you are, for your character. Uh, You spoke these worlds into existence. I've been so glad that we've had some clear nights recently, and it's just good to walk out on that back deck and look up there and think about the fact that you spoke, that into existence. You just spoke it. And then you called us into existence. And you gave us physical birth, and then you gave us spiritual birth, and you've got a plan for our lives. You know where we are. You know what's going on. You know where we're hurting. We have guys in here who basically lost just about everything, and they desperately need a hope that they have a God that has given them eternal life and that this is brief right here. It's brief, and we believe that because we have a God who cannot lie. In Jesus' name we Amen.